he says, then the gospel, the good news that we're going to talk about tonight, won't actually transform our lives. We might believe it to be true up here. We might even believe that there is a God, but last night we looked at the concept uh, that, that even the demons can believe that there's a God, and they even go a step further. They fear that God. James says the demons believe and shudder that you and I, do we actually know God, or do we just know a bunch of things about God? Because when we go to heaven one day, when you and I face the king of the universe face to face, and he asks us the question, do you know my son? It's not going to be like a, a Scantron 10 question quiz. Like how much do you know about the Bible or how much do you know about God? It's going to be like God, the God of the universe, I believe wholeheartedly is going to ask the question, do you know my son? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus that this book that we've been talking about all week 66 books, 40 authors, 2,000 years is written about one guy, Jesus. And so we, all week we've been talking about you can put your trust in this Jesus that if we fear God and not man, like Daniel chapter 1 when he says, I resolve not to defile myself. I'm going to trust God enough to do what he says and, and however it works out. And then we saw that God was with Daniel. And then we looked at what does it look like to persevere through trials? Hey, do you remember, uh, we talked about this a couple of days ago, that we know how the story ends, right? Remember the Incredibles? Piper snuggling up next to me, going like, like when, the plane cra when the plane explodes, and she's like, oh no, Dada. And I'm like, homegirl, you've seen this movie so many times, right? She's like snuggled up next to me going, oh no. And I'm, why am I sitting there calm, cool, and collected? I know they didn't die. I know how the story ends. I've seen this movie before. And when you find yourself in the middle of a trial going through something, what would it look like if you had a confidence in knowing who your God is and you know how the story ends? But then the next, the next message we talked about, it's not just knowing how the story ends, it's knowing that God walks with you in that. Right? How many of us walk into our day-to-day -day lives thinking, I got this? Hey, anybody in the I got this person? Like you walk through your life just going like, I got this. My, one of my pastors said this to me recently and it like, shook me. He was like, our prayerlessness demonstrates in our life who we actually think is in charge. And I was like, woof. How many moments do I walk into life just going like, I got this. And, and yet when I got this, I'm kind of like Simba. Right? I walk into the, the, the trials of my life or the hard things in my life or even just like my day-to-day -day life and I'm like, rah, rah. and the world's like, oh, right? like, that's so cute. Do it again. Right? Like, Unless we know that Mufasa's behind us, right? James says, if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And yet my guess is there's a lot of us in this room that even when I say that, like if I said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, like still we don't go, whoa. But then remember we looked at Isaiah chapter six and Revelation chapter four and like had an actual picture, like let the God of the Bible inform you on who he is, not your Sunday school teacher. Right? Not, not like what culture says Jesus is, right? Not the like 20 foot statue on Bi at Biola where he's wearing like a big red sash, right? If you've been to Biola University before, like where I went to school, there's this like massive Jesus. I walked by this, literally, it's like a 25 foot mural of Jesus. I walked by that mural with, with Jesus, or with Jesus. True, but I walked by with Piper, my little girl, and I said, Piper, who is that? She said, Jesus. And I was like, <laughs> How do you know that? And she just looked, she just gave me this look. She was like, like everybody knows that, right? Like, but it's this most bizarre, like he's got this like long hair and blue eyes. And I'm like, I, I think way too often 
We let those kind of things inform us about who Jesus is. And so no wonder on your worst day, Jesus is not the person you're running to. But when was the last time, friend, we go, I can trust in him because I actually know who he is because I dive into God's word and let God's word inform me on who he is. And then last night we talked about sin, that we have this unwillingness to believe that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. And it's, it's created this separation between us and God. Not when we compare ourselves to our left or right, well, I'm not as bad as her, or I'm, he's way worse than me, right? Like, it's easy to do that. And yet, we walk into life with a biblical lens on that says, all sin, we have all sinned and we all fall short of God's standard, of his perfect standard, right? This word righteousness, right with God, we don't have it on our own. And so what do we do with this? And tonight, we're going to dive into the narrative of, of Daniel. But before we do that, right, I, tonight, we're going to talk about the gospel. And that word gospel means good news. And, and here's my fear, friends, right? Like, I'm going to come down here and see if my mic feeds back again. Here's my fear for you. My fear for you is this. That there's a lot of you in this room that when, even when I said, like, we're going to talk about the gospel tonight. Right? Maybe you already came into this chapel thinking, like, oh, I've heard this one. And, I, and like, I know it's Thursday, and I know it's been a long week already. Like, I, I know we might be tired, but my fear is when we say, hey, th this is, we're going to talk about the gospel, some of you in this room go, hmm, I've heard it. Like, oh, I know that one. I know that story. And you might go, that's not for me. That might be for someone else. But I don't want you to miss tonight, okay? Y'all been to Disneyland? Anybody in here been to Disneyland? Of course you have, Okay. <laughs> So recently, uh, I, we got Disney passes, and my little girl, Piper, she's like obsessed with Minnie Mouse, like all things Minnie Mouse, but Piper had never been to Disneyland before. And so uh, we get Disney passes, and uh, we keep telling Piper, like, hey, we're going to go to Disneyland. And she's like, oh, Disneyland! And we're like, you don't even know what Disneyland is, right? I was so tempted, y'all. I was so tempted to take her to Legoland and just tell her it was Disneyland, right? <laughs> You know how much money that would save me in the long term? I didn't do it, okay? I didn't do it, but I was tempted. And so we tell her, we're like, hey, we're going to Disneyland. Like, we're going to make this happen. And we, you know, we load up all the things. My wife is a genius. So she went on Amazon before and bought, like, the little Minnie Mouse and, like, the bubble thing and all the things that cost, like, a bajillion dollars in Disney. We already had all of them in the stroller, okay? So when she walked in the store, she was like, I want that. You're like, oh, you want that? Boom, best mom ever, right? Like, already had it, saved a bunch of money, okay? Didn't go to Legoland, did buy the cheap stuff. Okay? And so we're, we're in Disneyland, we, we make it happen, you know, we uh, walk through the front gates, whatever, and we like scan our things, and we're here. And I want you to imagine just for a second that I show up at Disneyland with Piper and Phoebe and Paige, and we scan our tickets, whatever, and we get through the carousel, or turn, what is that called? Turnstile, not the carousel, we're not there yet, okay? We get to the turnstile, and we walk into the front little, like, plaza area, and we just, like, sit down on a bench, and there's, like, I'm, like, Pipes, look, look, Mickey Mouse is in the flowers, and she turns around, and she's, like, whoa, Mickey Mouse. I'm, like, yeah, that's awesome, and then I'm, like, oh, Pipes, look, 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 and, like, the monorail, like, that train comes overhead, and, and she's, like, whoa, it's a train in the sky. I'm, like, yeah, Disneyland, welcome. Right? And, then, and then we sit down right there in the plaza and we like, take a little like, family photo and we sit down on the bench and we're like, we made it. This is Disney. And I'm like, oh, check out this bench pipes. So I'm like, you smell that? They pump like, smells into Main Street. Like, oh! 
Right? And we go, and we just like sit down, we're doing our thing, we're having fun, we're like still in the plaza, and I'm like, oh, Pipe's like the flowers, it's, it's Mickey Mouse. She's like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, Piper, Piper, here comes the train again. And like the train goes by again, she's like, whoa. We sit down, we're there for 15, 20, 30 minutes. An hour goes by, and we're just in this plaza, and I'm like, Disneyland, we're here. Two hours, three hours, four hours. I'm like, Pipe's the flowers. She's like, mm-hmm. It's cool. Train. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw it, Dad. Oh, Disneyland. And we come home, right? And maybe, maybe one of you comes up to me and goes like, you ask, you're like, hey, you went to Disneyland today, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, we went to Disneyland. You're like, you, you went in? Oh, yeah, we went in. How was it? It's all right. What do you mean all right? It's the happiest place on earth. I'm like, no, 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 it was cool. And you go to Piper, you're like, Pipes, how was it? She was like, eh. What do you mean, eh? Do, do, what characters did you see? Oh, we didn't see any of the characters. Huh? Like, were they hiding? Or No, no, we just, we just didn't see them. Oh, wh- what rides did you go on? Um, we actually, we didn't go on any rides. Wait, what? What, did you get the churro? No. Corn dog? No. Dole Whip, like, pineapple puree. Like, you can't, you can't go to Disneyland without getting the Dole Whip, right? Like, you got the Dole Whip. And we're like, no, didn't get the Dole Whip. You're like, were you even at Disneyland? We're like, no, yeah, like, turnstile, like, I scanned my ticket, my face popped up on the thing, like, I was in Disneyland, but, but you didn't go to Disneyland, no, I did, we, we just, just kind of stayed right there in the front gate, like, front, saw the train, you're like, yeah, the train's, like, super okay, right, like, it's, like, fine, and like, what about the flowers, no, yeah, that's cool, did I go to Disneyland, mm, yeah, but did I go to Disneyland, no, okay, so friends, Tonight, as I talk about the gospel, I believe wholeheartedly there are some of you in here that sit here and go, yeah, hey, Austin, I get the gospel. And I'm like, you might get the gospel, but you don't get the gospel. You might have have heard the message before. You might have even go like, hey, I believe in this God. But if I I sat with you and we were just one-on-one and I could ask you the question like, hey, friend, in what way is the gospel transforming every aspect of your life? Because here's what I promise you. Every leader that's in this room, every single leader that came up to you at like two camp, friends, like, can I just be super honest with you? This is like the brutal truth, okay? Y'all ready for it? They're not here because they need more 16-year-old friends. Okay? Like, I realize that's harsh. I realize that's harsh. But here's the reality, right? If any one of these leaders is like, I just need more 16-year-olds in my life, I'm like, get out, right? Like, you don't belong here. But here's the reality, okay? Here's what's true. Now, as they've hung out with you, as they've done time with you, maybe you've become friends. Possible. For sure possible. But that's not why they're here. Every one of these leaders, every one of these pastors is, is with you at camp. Because Jesus has transformed every aspect of their life. They understand the power of the gospel. And when we talk about this message tonight, I believe that this gospel message is for every single one of us in this room. Whether you've heard this message a hundred times or you've never heard this before. Friends, would you buckle up? Would you lean in? Would you open up your Bible? And if you're tired, don't slouch down in your chair. Lean forward, right? Square your shoulders off to me because I want to talk about the most important news that I get to share with you tonight that maybe you've heard before, maybe you've never heard before, but I believe that the God of the universe who always has been, who always will be is present here tonight 
and he wants to work in your life. He wants to show up in your life, and he wants to transform every area of your life. He doesn't just want to be a God that you pay attention to on Wednesdays because you go to youth group, and every once in a while on Sundays if you don't have any homework or if you don't have a sport that you're playing. So let's dive in. Daniel chapter 5, okay? And we're going to look at three things that this God does. Chapter 4, sorry. Chapter 5 is freaking weird. Read it later, okay? <laughs> Daniel chapter 4. We're going to pick up where we left off. Now, you remember last night, Nebuchadnezzar, homeboy, like, lost his mind? And he went off, and for, like, seven periods of time, he, like, eats with the ox, and he's, like, drenched with the dew of the field. And, and it was, what was it, what, Nebuchadnezzar's pride that led him there? Daniel warns him, and there's this grace of God demonstrated, and yet Daniel's pride, or, or Nebuchadnezzar's pride is the thing that says, he goes, look at what I've built. Look at what I've done. And because of that, all sin has a consequence. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is driven out into the wild. And then here we see the heart of God in Daniel chapter 4, verse 33. It says, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people, and he ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his, ha- and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. I circle that word restored in your Bible. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, circle that word again, my honor and my splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored, circle that word again, to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. See, God is in the business of restoration. And if you're sitting in here tonight and maybe you feel too far gone or you feel too broken or you look at your past and go, If you actually knew who I was, or if you actually knew what I've done, or if you actually knew, like, even the decisions I made, like, the week before camp, like, you don't understand. And friend, can I just speak to you directly for a second? God is in the business of restoration, of taking old things and making them new. That 2 Corinthians says that once what, what was dead, God makes alive. He makes new in himself. God restores Nebuchadnezzar back to his former splendor, but it's not just a Nebuchadnezzar thing, right? God is in the business of restoration, and he wants to work with you in your life, not to just, like, change little bits and pieces of you. He wants to restore all of you into something new and give you a purpose. He was made, you were made from purpose and for purpose. Do you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? that you were made in the image of God, that God created you intentionally with purpose. God wants to restore how he originally made you. Okay, so number one, the first thing we want to look at with the power of the gospel is that God is in the business of restoration. Number two, skip over to Daniel chapter six, and we're going to talk about Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, 
You read chapter 5 on your own, right? Like, if you want to fill in the gaps of the story, there's another king that comes into power after Nebuchadnezzar, right? He has another dream. He has another moment of disobedience. Remember what we talked about on night one? It said, again, Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we see this pattern happen within Israel. We see the same pattern happen within Babylon. And there's going to be a new king that comes into power that doesn't believe his father, that doesn't trust Nebuchadnezzar, and doesn't trust who God is or what God says. So he take things, takes things into his own hand and faces the consequences for it. Very short-reigned kingdom. And then we skip over to Daniel chapter 6 where we see Darius come into power. Right? And we saw it in the video, but Darius is uh, going to recognize Daniel's authority in his kingdom. And then there's going to be a bunch of people, right, that, like these wise advisors to Darius that don't like Daniel. And so they're going to trick Darius into making this decree. And they said, hey, king, you know how you're so wise? And he's like, mm-hmm, yes, tell me more. Right? He's like, stop, stop please tell me more, right? And Darius goes, yes, I'm so wise. And like, what if we made a decree? What if we made a law that no one can seek wisdom? No one can ask anything of anyone, like any higher power than you. And he's like, hmm, sounds good. And they, but they're, what they're doing is they're tricking Darius into making a law, into making a decree that is going to set Daniel up for failure, right? And we already saw it in the video, but let's read it in the Bible. Daniel chapter six, Right after he makes this decree, in verse 10, it says this. Now when Daniel learned that the, that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God. And then what do the next lines say? Just as he had done before. Friends, don't miss this. It's not that Darius hears about some new law and goes like, Oh, I can't pray, can I? Goes home, opens up the windows. Dear Lord, right? Like super loud. It's like he's not being a rebel in this moment because there's a new law. This has been the regular practice of Daniel. And at this point, here's the coolest part of the story. As I was studying for this passage, like this is something I've missed my whole life. Like I grew up hearing the story of Daniel and yet I missed this. At this point in the story, most theologians agree that Daniel's probably about 80 years old. So he's lived some 60, 65 years in captivity, in exile. So the next time you and I are wrestling with like a period of time that maybe doesn't make sense to us, where we're like, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? What is your timing in this? Like, I don't get it. Most of the time when you and I find ourselves walking through something hard, we ask the question, when am I going to get out of this? And I love that we see in the story of Daniel We see him wrestle with God, but instead of consistently asking, God, when am I going to get out of this? I believe wholeheartedly that Daniel consistently prayed, God, what am I going to get out of this? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And for some 65 years and three different kingdoms, Daniel has been consistently showing up, faithfully following God. He's seen his friends rescued. He's seen himself rescued. And and here we're about to see it happen again. Daniel chapter 6. Just as he had done before, verse 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of your exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing, he still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. 
He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your, may your God, don't miss this line, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Notice that Darius did everything in his power as the most powerful person in the land to rescue Daniel, and then gets to a point where he goes, I can't. You need something outside of you to rescue. You need something outside of your current circumstance to come to your rescue. May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. Then in verse 17, it says, A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the ring of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called out to Daniel in in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, there's that line again, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I have found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the lion's den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Friend, God is in the business of restoration. God is also in the business of rescuing. That you and I, every single one of us, left to ourselves, we have this sin problem, right? Remember the, remember the like contraption? Right? If, I, if I like connected it to your brain and I projected it onto the screen and I went, hey, let's, let's just walk through this week, your thoughts, your words, your actions, your attitudes, the way that you've interacted with everybody, not a single one of us goes like, ooh, sign me up. We're not excited about that. Why? Because it's obvious that every single one of us has a sin problem. And so we look at this story and we go, wow, it's it's easy to look at this story and go, cool, God rescued Daniel from the lions. Neato. What else? But friends, the Bible's not just a story about what happened. The Bible's a story about what happens. And so we dive into the text and we look at a God that that restores and we look at a God that rescues and we say, this is who this God is. He always has been and he always will be. But friends, I think if we're not careful, you and I, we settle for a version of God that makes more sense to us. Hey, how many of you love the ocean? Anybody love just like going in it? Anybody like just terrified of the ocean? Okay, like me too a little bit. It's like a love-hate relationship. I love the ocean. I love to surf, right? Like I love to be in it, but it's also like low-key terrifying. Like there's something about it. Every time I go to the ocean, I just like stand at the edge of the ocean and I'm like, whoa. I just like, I like to feel small by the edge of the ocean. So my brother came and visited not too long ago and he, my brother lives in Kansas City and he's got three little boys, okay? And like if you... If you and I went to the ocean, like all of us, if we live in California, right? I know like some Arizona folks, but like, like most of us have like been around the ocean. And if you go to the ocean and are still awed by it, imagine like Kansas City folk, right? Like my little nephew showed up at the ocean and they lost their minds. They were like, this is not like Lake Michigan. And I was like, no, no, it's not, right? They're like, we thought we had seen windswell. And we're like, I'm like, okay, all right. So we like go to the ocean. We go down to this place in Oceanside called the Harbor. And at the Harbor, there's these, uh, you know, like beach showers, 
You know what I'm talking about? It's like the, so at the harbor, it's like this big open harbor, long stretch of beach. And then these, there's these showers in the parking lot. And if you go to the beach with little kids, it's kind of like you're moving there. Right? Like you're like unloading the car and like the amount of bags and towels and toys. And it's like, like, are we going to be here for three weeks? Like, why do we have so much stuff? And so we're like unloading the cars and I, I look up at my nephews and my nephews have like taken their sand toys and like a towel and their stuff. And they've gone over to the showers and y'all like these showers, like maybe some beach showers where you're from are nice. These ones are not nice. These ones are like, like I watch surfers who like pee in their wetsuits, right? And like which is kind of gross because wetsuits, like the way that they're designed is to like let a little bit of water in and then like keep your body warm. So like that pee didn't go anywhere, homeboy, right? Like, so like when you get out of the water and you're like taking your wetsuit off and you're like showering off, like there's, there's gotta be some pee in this water. So there's like, like the drains never really work all that well. And so there's like, there's kind of like stagnant water and then like mud from the sand. And my, my three nephews, I kid you not, they've like settled into this pee water and they're like splashing each other and they're playing. And I'm looking at it and I'm just looking at them. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Right? Like what? Literally like 25 more steps. You got have like wide open beach, ocean, and you settled for pee water. Like, like I, I literally looked at them and I'm like, I'm like, pick up your stuff, keep walking, like 20 steps, and you'll get there. Like the, the beach, it's right here. And here's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes. Right? He says this about, like when we talk about a God that reconciles, and we talk about a God that restores, and we talk about a God that rescues, friends, I think a lot of us in this room, we wrestle because our picture of God is so small. We just put him in this little box. And we think we understand God. And then when he tells us not to do things, we're like, what a buzzkill. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum or in a pea-filled shower because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Friends, don't miss the power of the good news of the gospel and the God that wants to make himself known through his word. So God is a God that restores. God is a God that rescues. And then because of our sin, we have this broken relationship with God. And so God is a God that reconciles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says that God is in the ministry of reconciliation. Y'all know what an ambassador is? It's like somebody in another country that represents like their home country's interests. Their whole goal is to reconcile relationship. They go, we want to restore, we want to reconcile, we want to mend this relationship in this country with our home country. This is what God says, that he sends Jesus to reconcile us to himself. That God is in the business, not only of just restoration, of rescuing, but of reconciliation, of mending that which was broken. And this is where, friends, I wish we could pause in the middle of the sermon, like genuinely, and I would just sit down. Maybe we'd walk down to the snack shop, and I'd grab this very aesthetically pleasing table, and I would just go, hey, do you want the Starry or the Coconut LaCroix? You want the Starry? Good, because Coconut LaCroix is my favorite. It's like vacation in a can. And I would just crack this sucker open. And I don't care if you hate coconut. You're not drinking it. I am, okay? And we would just sit here. And I would open up my Bible and I would say, hey, 
no need for yours right now. Just like, let's just read mine. And this is the part of the sermon where I, I like, genuinely, I wish we, I could just stop and go, hey, don't, don't just stop distracting the person next to you. Right? Lean in, focus, and, and let's just, like, me and you have a conversation. And, and maybe you would sit down with me and you'd go, okay, Austin, like, I've been, I've been tracking all week. And I understand there's, like, this issue of trust with God that, that originally in Genesis chapter 3 when he said, did God really say that fractured this trust and now we don't believe God enough to actually do what he says. But if I do trust God, then, then my, my house can be built on the rock and my, my foundation can be in him, my hope can be in him. Because if we find in this world that nothing satisfies, maybe we were made for another world. And like, I get this. And I get that we can persevere through hardship and trial and we can find joy in the midst of that. Why? Because God is with us. And maybe you've been wrestling all week with this and, and maybe we sit over just a starry and a LaCroix and go, what, what now? What do I do with this? And this is where I would open up my Bible to, to Romans chapter one and I would just say, friend, Romans chapter one makes it abundantly clear that there is a God. And, and in Romans chapter one, it says that through all creation, creation itself cries out that there is a creator. And if we were sitting here, I'd be like, okay, imagine you're in like a cabin in the middle of the woods and you're just like out there, you're hanging out, right? Maybe you're with like a friend or two, but like all your friends went to bed, so it's like just you and you got a hankering for alphabet soup, right? And you're like, I love alphabet soup. And I'm like, I know, it's the best. And we were sitting here and we're like, you're eating your alphabet soup and then you get up and you go to the bathroom and you come back and in your alphabet soup is written like, I'm watching you. I don't know about you, but that would be a moment where I would get in my car and I would drive fast towards civilization. Why? Because like, even though the alphabet doesn't have that many letters, the, the chances, the probabilities of those letters just randomly rearranging themselves into what says, I'm watching you, is not very likely. What's likely is you're in a horror movie right now. Like, get out. If we walked through the middle of the woods and we saw a cabin and I just said, there was a crazy storm here last night and it all just randomly fell and this cabin got built, you'd be like, you're insane. Intelligent design demonstrates, proves that there's an intelligent designer. And Romans chapter one says, God has made himself abundantly clear through creation. He said, I made it. I'm the author, I'm the creator of it. And then it's gonna say this, that you and I have chosen created things over the creator that we've settled, which would then, we, I would turn over to Romans chapter three, verse 10, where it says, there is no one good, not even one. And you'd be like, well, I mean, like, I'm not all bad. Like, I'm not that bad. And I would go, friend, I'm not the one saying this. Like, I'm not looking at you going like, no, you're bad. Like, like if we just open up God's word into Romans chapter three, verse 23, it says, all have sinned, all means all. And all have fallen short of the glory of God. His, his standard is perfection. His standard is righteous. And you and I aren't that. Because we've sinned. Romans chapter 3 verse 10, there's no one good, not even one. There's no one that seeks after God. And then we, we would flip over, like because of that sin, to Romans chapter 6 verse 23. And I would say, the wages of that sin is death. And maybe you would sit here and you'd take a sip of your starry and go, whoa, wait. Don't we all die? Like the wages of sin is death, but like we're all going to die at some point, right? Like 75, 80, 85, 90, like my grandma beat bops, 103 years old, right? And I'd be like, yes, for sure. But when Romans talks about death, it's not just a physical death. That when Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says the wages of sin is death, 
Sin only pays in one way, and it's separation from God. And so Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, the wages of sin is, is actually this eternal separation from God. That the wages of sin, the way sin pays, is by eternally separating you from this God. And so you'd go, Austin, I thought you said this was good news. Like, yeah, we're going to get there. But the good news has a lot of bad news before we get to the good news. Until we understand the depth of our own sin, of our own depravity, of our own brokenness, we will never think grace is amazing. And so I would turn then from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and we would understand that all sin has a consequence. And I would turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8, and go, oh, I love this part. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this. It says, at just the right time, God said, mm, the timing right now is perfect. At just the right time, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you'd go, whoa, whoa, wait, I've heard about Jesus dying, like I've heard about the cross, but like, why did Jesus have to die? Like, why, why, like that seems kind of intense. Like, why couldn't God just go like, hey, I love you guys, I forgive you guys. Like, you and I, weren't we taught that? Right, like if you have siblings in here and you wronged your sibling, like, what, didn't your parents come in and go like, hey, Matthew, say I'm sorry. And you're like, I'm sorry. And you're like, Meredith, say I forgive you, right? I don't know why it's Matthew Meredith, right? It's like, say I forgive you, and you're like, I forgive you. Like, weren't we taught that? So why does God, like, why does God make it so intense? Like, why did, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just go, I forgive you? And this is where we would, we would talk about the thing that God is love 100%, but God has wrath. And God's wrath is this, very simply defined. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. God's wrath is his love in action against sin. See, if I love something, I hate that which hurts that something. Does that make sense? Right? Like, uh, I almost punched a doctor one time in the face because I went to my two-month checkup with Piper. I was a new dad, okay? Never been this, never done this before. And I'm this new dad, and I've heard my daughter cry before. Like, I've heard the screams, but I've never heard her, like, ouch cry yet. Like, at this point, it was like cry meant hungry, cry meant tired, cry meant, like, I'm a baby, I just cry. And yet, the doctor looked at me in the eyes, and she said, hey, Piper's just going to experience a little bit of pressure. And I'm like, pressure? What does that mean, right? Like when doctors say that, run, okay? And so this doctor looks at me in the eyes, says, Piper's gonna experience a little pressure, and then she pulls out a needle. I'm like, oh. And she goes, she takes this needle, she gives Piper a shot. And Piper let out this cry that I'd never heard before as a dad. And when I heard Piper cry in pain, my first reaction is I look at this doctor, and I'm like, I'm gonna kill you, right? Like, <laughs> why? You just hurt that which I love, like the object of my love. If, if y'all like just watched me as a dad and like I, Piper and Phoebe were just like willingly walking into something that was gonna hurt them and I was just like, mm, oh well, they're gonna learn, right? None of you would be like, wow, you're such a good dad, right? Like it, the, the, the God's wrath is his love and action against sin. He actually hates that which hurts you. Did you know that? And yet we go back to the like cone, cone, cone sin analogy and you and I, right, forced love is not love at all. And so we choose, like, we choose sin all the time. And God looks at a world where his creation is choosing that which is not him. And we're settling for something that is not him. And God hates sin because it hurts that which he loves. 
And so his love, his wrath is his love in action against sin. And the Bible makes it crystal clear that his wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That sin pays in one way and it's death. And so all sin must be paid for either by you or by Jesus. And in the greatest exchange of all time, Romans chapter 5 says, at the perfect time, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And if we were sitting here, you might go righteousness, big churchy word. And I go, uh-huh, it means right with God. So you go, oh, so if I have sin, I'm wrong with God. Mm-hmm. And sin pays in death. Mm-hmm. So why did Jesus have to die? Because sin only pays in one way and it's death. So either you have to pay for your sin with this eternal separation from God, or Jesus comes and lives a perfect life that you and I couldn't live and dies the death that you and I deserve to die so that we might live the life that he deserved to live. That we can be made righteous with God through Jesus. And so if we were sitting here, you might go, okay, now what? I understand this, Austin, but like, what do I do with this? And this is where we would turn to one last place. And I'd say in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. Paul in the book of Romans is going to make it abundantly clear what our response needs to be. And in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10, Paul's going to say, if you, not if, not if I, not if your parents, not if your grandparents, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, here's the best part. Like the good news of the gospel, the pinnacle of the good news of the gospel is that Jesus didn't stay dead. He didn't just pay the penalty on the cross and die on the cross to pay for your sins. He, three days later, later resurrects himself and proves that he can make dead things alive. Friend, you and I, without Jesus, are dead things. Jesus' resurrection is the pinnacle of the good news of the gospel because Jesus proves that he has the power even over death. And Romans 10 is gonna say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you might go, what's Lord mean? Lord means this, that when I confess what I say out of my mouth, my life follows, and God, you're in charge, not me. I'm giving you the steering wheel of my life. I bow my knee and say, you're in charge, not me. I trust you enough to do what you say. Remember biblical faith? Biblical faith has belief, action, and follow through. We have to believe enough uh, and say, God, I believe that you're real. I believe that in who you are. I believe in what you say. And then my actions have to follow. And then in my, the consistency of my life of coming back to his word, of understanding the power of community and understanding these reminders that I need. And, and friends, lordship bowing my knee to him is understanding that Jesus, it is you and you alone that saves. It's not me. It's not my power. It's not my actions. Right? Crystal makes, Bible, Bible makes it crystal clear. It's by grace and grace alone that you and I are saved. And Romans 10 is going to say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple as that. And if you and I were sitting here and we were having this conversation 
I would ask you a question. I would say, friend, what's keeping you tonight from surrendering your life to Jesus? What's stopping you tonight from giving your life over fully to him? To understand and know the good news of the gospel, that God has made himself abundantly clear that you and I have a sin problem, that we've actively chosen that which isn't God's way of doing life, and that sin pays in one way in its death, and yet Jesus came and he died that death on our behalf. And he's offering this exchange to go, I will give you my life for your death. And then he raises from the dead to prove that he has the power to make that kind of claim. But now it's up to you. God has no spiritual grandchildren. He only has children. And so it can't be your mom's faith or your dad's faith or your pastor's faith or my faith on your behalf. This is a you decision. And so I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a minute. And and friend, please don't confuse this. Like there's nothing about my words or like the way that this prayer is said that saves. There's only one that saves and it's Jesus. So I'm just going to walk you through a simple prayer. And if you want to pray this with me to surrender your life to Jesus, would you just pray something like this? God, I thank you for bringing me to this place called Hume. And God, I recognize tonight that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. God, thank you that you loved me enough to send Jesus. God, thank you that Jesus lived that perfect life that I can't live. Thank you for the death of Jesus on the cross that paid the penalty for my sin, that offered me forgiveness. God, thank you that Jesus didn't stay dead, that he resurrected from the dead. And God, because of that resurrection, I can now have life in you. I give you my life. My hope and my trust is solely in you. God, thank you for loving me. I surrender my life to you. From this day forward, I follow you. It's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, friend, here's what I'm gonna ask you to do, okay? If you said that prayer with me tonight for the very first time, not that you've said that prayer before in the past and you wanted to say it again tonight, if you said that prayer for the very first time tonight with me, in just a second, not right now, in just a second, I'm gonna ask you to stand up. And here's why, okay? I know that can be scary to like stand up in front of a room full of your friends, but here's why I'm gonna ask you to stand up. Two reasons. Number one, we wanna celebrate with you. That the Bible says the old has gone, the new has come. That you went from spending eternity apart from God in a very real place called hell to eternity with God in in perfection where, where there is no war and no tears. And you are now a child of God, a daughter of the king of the universe, a son of the king of the universe. So number one, we want to celebrate. Number two, we want to keep you accountable. Your youth pastors, your leaders, we want to go down the hill with you and go, hey, remember when you stood up at camp? Hey, can we walk? Like, we want to do life with you. Following Jesus was never meant to be done alone. And you have leaders in this room that love you, that have been transformed and changed by Jesus, and now they want to walk that out with you. So for those two reasons, to celebrate and to keep you accountable, if you said that prayer for the very first time tonight, would you stand your feet right now?
pastors, leaders in the room, hopefully like catch eyes with your students, right? We're gonna, if you stood up tonight, friends, we just want to have a conversation with you again to celebrate and to go, hey, like, let, let's, let's live this out. Let's walk this out as you go home. Hey, dang, you guys are sons and daughters of the king of the universe as you surrender your life to Jesus. Welcome to the rest of your life. Hey, give it up one more time. Hey, y'all can grab a seat. Y'all can grab a seat. Y'all sit down real quick, okay? I want to talk real quick to the rest of you in this room. If you didn't just stand up to your feet, you're telling me one of two things. Either you didn't stand up, you're saying, hey, I've already made that decision before. I've made that decision. I'm following Jesus. My life is about following Jesus. I'm going to talk to you in just a second, okay? If you made that decision or if you sat down, stayed seated, and you go, Austin, I'm, I'm not ready for that yet. I've been here this week and I'm still wrestling. I don't, I don't know if I believe in the Bible. I don't know if I believe in this God. And you're, you're wrestling with this. Can I just encourage you? There's not a better place to wrestle than right here. We got a day and a half left. You got leaders up here. You got a community that loves you. The worst thing you can do is doubt and just go, eh, and walk out of this chapel tonight. The best thing you can do with that doubt is to find a leader to ask hard questions. To get to the bottom of it, to keep wrestling with God. God's here for it. God's welcoming you to say, hey, come in doubt. Come come to me with those doubts. Keep wrestling. Keep struggling. If you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And now, if you if you stayed seated because you've made that decision before in the past, and you would sit here and you'd go, Austin, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've already surrendered my life to him. Let me just talk to you real quick about something in the Bible called repentance. At John the Baptist, the very first words out of his mouth when he starts his ministry, right before he baptizes Jesus in Matthew, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. When Jesus dies on the cross and then resurrects and then gives his guys right, the, the, the great commission and says, go and make disciples in all nations, we turn over to the book of Acts and we see the first words of Peter's ministry are repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. See, the, the life of a Christian is marked not by perfection, but by repentance. And repentance is a big churchy word that simply means to change your mind. Repentance looks like this. You're walking one direction, you stop, change your mind about where you're going, you turn around and you walk the other way. And so repentance, tonight, I'm gonna invite you and I'm gonna challenge you. Tonight, I believe there are some of you in this room that go, I have surrendered my life to Jesus before, but my life doesn't look like that lately. If when Romans 10 says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, to confess means that the words that you say, your life follows. And maybe you're sitting here as a follower of Jesus going, my life isn't following that right now. There's something I need to give up. There's someone I need to break up with. There's a door I need to take off my bedroom. I need accountability in my life. There's a friend group I need to leave. There's an addiction I need to break. If you're sitting in this room and you know that your life is not on track with following Jesus, but you want to come back to him, friends, let me just give you the greatest news of all time. God is not sitting up in heaven waiting for you to come back like this. Hmm. Oh, oh, she's back. Interesting. That's not the picture we get. The picture that we get when God gives us the picture of what it looks like for one of his sons or one of his daughters to come home, it's that he's on the front porch at the last light Right? straining his eyes, hoping that his son comes home. 
And when his son shows up, having walked away from his father, he puts a robe over him and a ring on his finger, kisses him, hugs him, and says, my son is home, my daughter is home. So if tonight you know that you need to repent of something, you would sit here and go, Austin, I've given my life to Jesus, but it doesn't look like it. And I know there's something in my life that needs to change. Friend, in just a second, I'm gonna ask you to stand too, but let me challenge you. And, and please take this seriously. Don't just stand because the person next to you is standing. If you're gonna stand right now, stand because you go, Austin, there's something in my life that I need to repent of, and I'm going to stand up because I need the physical reminder that when I was at Hume, July 2023, like there, was, there was this moment, this pivot in my life. This isn't rededication. Like this isn't a re-salvation. You're not re-upping on it. That's not a thing. This is you going, I'm repenting. I'm coming back. And so if you stand up here in just a second, I'm going to ask you to do it for the same two reasons. Number one, we want to celebrate with you because I believe wholeheartedly that when chains break, when patterns of sin are broken and you come back to Jesus, God's kingdom will expand because of that. Your life will be an example and a model and God will use you in mighty ways. Number one, we want to celebrate. Number two, we want to keep you accountable and that's the harder one. If you stand up tonight, your leader's going to look you in the eyes and go, why did you stand? And you go, you're going to have to go, here's what's been happening in my life. And here's why I want to get back on track. And your leaders in this room love you enough to call you out on that. And to challenge you, to remind you, to encourage you. So again, don't stand because the person next to you is standing. Stand because you know the conviction in your heart you need to repent tonight. Friends, if you hear the gospel and it evokes repentance in your life, and you know that something needs to change, would you stand your feet right now? thing okay I'm gonna pray over y'all in just a second and then like we're gonna sing a worship song and then this space is gonna be open up for you to to process if you stood up tonight for the very first time I'm gonna encourage you to stay if you stood for repentance I'm also gonna encourage you to stay maybe this next song that we sing uh, we're gonna celebrate a little bit and I, I think sometimes in church we, we've, we view like moments like this, like it can absolutely be emotional, but sometimes it's a little bit somber. And in this next song, we just wanna celebrate the fact that the gospel brings freedom. And we wanna go, I thank God. And we're gonna give glory and honor and praise to him because he's worth it. And he's worthy of it. And he has rescued. And tonight in this room, he has taken dead things and made them alive through the power of his cross and through the power of the resurrection. So would you stand your feet right now? pray with me. Let me pray over you, and then we're going to worship. God, thank you for tonight. God, thank you for the gospel and the good news that transforms lives. God, thank you for your sons, your daughters that tonight gave their life to you for the very first time. Thank you for your sons and your daughters that are getting back on track tonight. God, thank you for your gospel. We love you. We give you our life. We respond to you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.